Good morning, church. Would you pray with me, please? Gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, it's with a tremendous sense of awe and a tremendous sense of reverence and a tremendous desire and anticipation that you'll be pleased to visit us through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us. Would you cause him to fulfill his job description, which is to guide us into all truth. And Father, we pray once again that you'd be pleased to open our eyes that we might behold you more clearly for Christ's sake. Amen and amen. Well, I'm honored to be with you today, friends. I know many of you, and it's a joy for me to be in your presence and to worship with you. This is the last in a series of sermons on the one another commands. Actually, there are 58 one another commands that tell us how to get along with each other in the body of Christ. It's a wonderful study. We've looked at that at the men's group on Friday morning. We did that several years ago. It took us about three years to go through the 58 commands because we always ran into problems because we're not doing it very well. And so we worked at it very hard. But it's a wonderful series that you've had, and this is the last in a series on the one another's. How do we get along with each other inside the church? And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 and follow along as we see Paul's concluding comments on the one another commands as it relates to our fellowship in the body of Christ. One of my preaching mentors several years ago said, Bruce, you're going to love church work, except for the people. <laughs> now, as funny as that may seem, there's a tragedy associated with that. Because oftentimes, we inside the church treat one another just like we do everybody else in the world, in the world system. Sometimes there's no difference in our relationships inside the church as there are when we are inside the world. We have forgotten that doctrine, standard, doctrine precedes practice. That's why a pure moralistic society can never succeed because it's always changing according to cultural demands that come and go like the wind. In fact, the word morals comes from the Greek word mores, which means ever-changing. And that would mean this, that we have a different moral standard. About every 40 to 50 years, our morals change, and they get worse with every successive generation. And so we don't want to talk about a moralistic society. We don't want to talk about a Christian ethic. The word ethics means security and stability. The word ethics literally means horse stable. You could put a horse in a stable, and it would understand its ethic, which is the standard, and therefore it feels a sense of security and significance. So we want to talk about the ethics of our conduct within each other as the body of Christ. Now in chapters 1 to 3 in the book of Ephesians, Paul describes for us and teaches us the doctrine or the standard. That's what the word doctrine means. It means standard. It teaches us the standard of the transformation from the old way of life into our new life in Christ. And he sets forth what we are in Christ and how we should act because we are in Christ. And essentially, he's saying this. In chapters 1 to 3, he's teaching us the standard of who we are. In chapters 4, 5, and 6, he said, now this is how you are to act based upon who you are in chapters 1 through 3. And so if you don't understand chapter 4, 5, and 6, you need to go back and look at chapters 1, 2, and 3 to find out who you are. Because he said, this is the transformation of who you are. Now, here's how you act. In other words, he's saying... Practice your position. This is who you are in Christ in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now put that into practice. That would be our conduct, the one and other commands of how we get along with each other. We are to behave, Paul teaches us in this passage, in accordance with who we are. 
Now, the first part of chapter 4, the book of Ephesians, Paul describes the believer's relationship to the church. And now Paul deals with the believer's relationships with each other inside the church. Now, certainly as members of the body of Christ, we are to be in this world, but the world is out to defile us and also is out to tempt us. And so we cannot depart from the world because we have to live in the world and we're called to have a witness to us. But at the same time, we cannot embrace the, words, the world's worldliness to teach us how to get along with each other. You see, Paul's going to tell us that we must walk with purity and not allow the world to defile us or to tempt us. Now notice verse 17. The word therefore in verse 17 refers back to the first six verses of this chapter. And Paul's discussion of the unity of the church, the spiritual maturity of the church, and the depth of the church. It's as if Paul is saying this. God has created in this world an entity, a marvelous entity, a wonderful entity known as the church. And the church is to teach us how we are to act as he understands it. And so he shows us the totality of what the church is. And in so doing, he then says, now let's get specific and teach us how we are to get along with one another. In other words, the doctrine of the church, now listen to this, folks. The doctrine of the church determines the practice of the people. The doctrine of the church determines the practice of the people. If we don't know who we are as a church, then we are not going to know how we are to get along with each other as the church. Because the doctrine of the church, chapters 1, 2, and 3, will determine the practice of the people inside the church. Now, as I look at this passage, when it was given to me a couple of weeks ago, in 24 minutes and 10 seconds, I don't have much time to go through this. When I, actually, when I scripted this out, it took me six sermons. Now, I'm not going to give you six sermons today, so rest assured. I'm just going to have to give you an introduction into these verses and give you three insights that Paul gives us in this passage. So open your Bibles, and I want you to see these three things. Three insights that we can gain from this passage on how we are related to one another. First of all, you'll see in verses 17 to 19 that Paul gives the church an admonition, a warning, 17 to 19. And then verses 20 and 21, he says, now there are some adjustments that you need to make in your thinking because of the admonition I just gave you. And then lastly, Paul makes an application of the adjustments based upon that admonition. So let's look at those three insights. The admonition, the adjustments, and the application. First of all, in verses 17 to 19, notice the admonition. There are some negatives in the Christian life. It's not always positive. There are some negatives in the Christian life, and here's one of them. That you should no longer walk or live as the Gentiles do. The word walk means live or direction of your life. And the admonition is this. Do not live as the Gentiles do. The Christian is not to imitate the life of the world and act like an unsaved person. The word Gentile is a Greek word that means nations, people, heathen, or pagan. And in the New Testament sense, it means a non-Jew. Now, that's its nationalistic meaning. But it also has a spiritualistic meaning. The term also refers to people who do not know God. They do not know God. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, Paul defines the Gentiles as those who know not God, those who know not God. And the admonition is, do not live, do not walk as the Gentiles do, as if you don't know God in your treatment of each other. Now, Paul's point in verse 17 is rather obvious. 
is that we are not to live our daily lives as people who do not know God. And you'll see that in the conduct that we have with each other inside the church. And what follows is a very vivid description of a person who does not know God. Look at verses 18 and 19. Here is a description of a person who does not know God. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of the hearts. Essentially, it's this. Notice. They think wrong. They understand wrong. And they have a wrong view of God, and that is because they are wrong. They are wrong. That's the phrase hardening of their hearts. He says they think wrong. They understand wrong. They have a wrong view of God. And the reason is because their hearts are hardened. It's because they, in their nature, are wrong. And the admonition is this. Don't act like somebody who is wrong. You're now in Christ. Do not live. Do not walk as the Gentiles do, as if you don't know God. Don't do that, he tells us. And then he goes into some adjustments based upon that admonition. He says there are certain ways you need to adjust your thinking. And now we come to verses 20 and 24. Paul teaches us in these verses that the believer, the follower of Christ, those who make up the body of Christ, must live a life that is radically different than their old way of living. Now, Paul did experience and expect the Ephesians to have some sort of changes going in their lives. And so he gives them three adjustments in their thinking patterns. And you'll see them in verses 23 through 25. First of all, three things he tells them, make you these adjustments so that you will no longer live as if you don't know God. So he tells us three things. Adjust this in your thinking. Put off, put on, and put away. Put off, put on, and put away. Put off the old way of life. Put on the new way of life. And put off falsehood. He says, make this adjustment because if you don't do that, you're going to be acting like you don't know God. And so put off the old things. Put on the new person. And put away all falsehood. You see, the emphasis Paul is teaching us here is how do you think? It's what's on your mind. So a logical question would be, what are the characteristics of a person who has made those adjustments, who has put off, who has put on, and who has put away? Well, he gives us a very good description. Notice in verses 20 and 21, the first characteristic of somebody who has made those mental adjustments and have put off, put on, and put away is that they have a Christ-centeredness about them, verses 20 and 21. You see, an unsaved person walks in the vanity of their mind, but a person who's in Christ, a saved person, walks according to the mind of Christ. The first indication, a characteristic of somebody who's put off, who's put on, and who's put away, is you're going to see in them a Christ-centeredness. Secondly, you're going to see they have a knowledge of truth, verse 21. They know the truth about God, the Father, they know the truth about God the Son, and they know the truth about God the Holy Spirit. They know the things that are true. That's because they have a Christ-centeredness about them. Thirdly, notice this in verse 22. They have an awareness of their sensitivity to their own sin. They are sensitive to their own sin. They acknowledge their own sin, and they confess their own sin. And that's because they've made these adjustments in their thinking. They put off the old way of living. They put on the new man in Christ, and they put away all falsehood. And then lastly, the fourth characteristic of a person who's made those adjustments is this. In verse 23, they have a renewed mind. 
They have a renewed mind. You see, now for the first time, they're able to think about truthful things because their mind has been renewed. They don't have a reprobate mind anymore. They have a renewed mind. Now, as the mind understands the Word of God in the Scripture, the Holy Spirit gradually begins to transform that person by the Spirit, and that renewal leads to a transformed and changed lifestyle. Now, notice this. Physically, we are what we eat. Spiritually, we are what we think. Physically, you are what you eat. Spiritually, we are what we think. That's what the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 23, 7. As he thinks in his heart, so is he. You see, what you think about is what you talk about. Thoughts become our words. Words become our actions. Actions become our habits. Habits become our character. And character becomes our destiny. It all starts with how you think. And Paul says, make this adjustment so that you'll no longer be living as if you don't know God. You've got to put off the old self. You've got to put on the new self. And you put away all falsehood. Don't act as if you don't know God when you treat one another inside the church. Do you know what the best barometer of whether or not you have made these adjustments of putting off, putting on, and putting away? I think it's this. Listen to your own words. What do you talk about? Why did you say that phrase? Why did you choose that vernacular expression? Why did you say that? What's the intent behind it? You see, the best barometer of your spiritual depth and following of Christ Jesus is what Jesus said himself in Matthew chapter 12. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you want to know if you've made those three adjustments... Listen to your conversations. Why do you talk about the things you talk about? Why did you say that? You see, that's a reflection of your heart. And remember, when your heart is hardened, you don't know God. And so the warning is this. Don't act as if you don't know God. Make this adjustment. Put off the old self. Put on the new self. And put away all falsehood. Out of the overflow of the mouth, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Listen to your own conversations. That will be an indication of your own spiritual depth and maturity. Now, Paul was never one who was content to explain a principle of Scripture and let it stay there. He's one who always makes application. He always applies it to the different areas of life that need to feel its power. And so Paul now lists some specific applications of the adjustments we made because of that admonition. He lists some specific areas in which exchanges are to take place. It's the application of putting off, putting on, and putting away. These exchanges are to take place in our relationships with each other inside the church. Because remember this, the doctrine of the church determines the practice of the people. Doctrine precedes practice. If we don't understand the doctrine of the church, you're never going to understand how to get along with each other. And so Paul says, as a result of this admonition... There are certain adjustments you need to make in your thinking. And now as a result of that, here's how you apply those adjustments in your life, relationships with each other, the one another's with each other inside the church. First of all, notice in verse 25, the first adjustment is this. Exchange lying for speaking truth. Exchange lying for speaking truth. A lie is a statement that is contrary to fact with the intent to deceive. Now if I tell you it's 12 o'clock, 
And then later on, I learned that my watch was wrong. I did not lie to you. But if I told you it's 12 o'clock with the intent that you will be late for the meeting so that it'll harm you and be good for me, I, my intent was to deceive, that's a lie. John 8, tells us the devil is the, a liar and the father of lies. And so whenever you and I speak truth, the Spirit of God begins to work. But whenever we tell a lie with the intent to deceive and harm someone, Satan goes to work. We exchange lying for speaking truth. We're to speak the truth in love with one another. Truth in love with one another. I find it very interesting in the Scripture that most often when you see the word truth, you see it associated with the word grace. Most of the time you'll see that it's grace and truth, which tells us this. We need to be truthful in our relationships to one another. But we need to do it graciously. It's grace and truth. You see, friends, truth without grace is a half-truth. But grace without truth is no grace at all. It's grace and truth. So exchange lying to one another, deceiving one another with the intent to harm. Exchange that for speaking truth with grace. The next exchange you'll find in verses 26 and 27. We need to exchange unrighteous anger for righteous anger. Exchange unrighteous anger for righteous anger. Anger that is selfish and passionate Undisciplined and uncontrolled is sinful. It's useless and it's hurtful. But the disciplined anger that seeks the rightful place of a righteous God in our society is pure, it's selfless, and it's dynamic. Some of us aren't angry. And some of us ought to be angry. But we need to be angry at the right things, at the right time, in the right method. We ought to be angry with the sin that we see in the church in our relationship with each other. Are you angry about that? You ought to be, because that's an offense to a holy God who has a righteous position in our society and is the head of the church. You see, we need to be angry in a righteous way. You exchange unrighteous anger for righteous anger. We need to be angry about the right things at the right time and in the right manner. So we exchange unrighteous anger for righteous anger. And then in verse 28, another exchange he tells us to apply based upon that admonition and those adjustments is that we exchange stealing for sharing. Verse 25, 28. Stealing is a characteristic of the unregenerate. The regenerate work to meet the needs of others. Another exchange you'll see in verses 29 and 30 is we need to exchange corrupt communication for edifying words. Exchange corrupt communication for edifying words. The word corrupt is a Greek word that literally means rotten and refers to something that is worthless and useless. So exchange this worthless, rotten, useless communication with edifying words. So dearly beloved, whether it's an off-color joke, profanity, dirty stories, or crude speech, there's nothing, there's no place for that in the life of the church. No place for that in the life of the church. Be it a golf-colored joke, some form of mild profanity, dirty stories, or crude speech. Nothing like that should occur in the church. Because you know what that's doing? That's saying that we act like we don't know God. And yet we gather together to say that we do know God. So exchange corrupt communication 
for edifying words. Our speech in the body of Christ to one another should be spiritually encouraging, spiritually strengthening, spiritually edifying, and spiritually positive. Then notice in verse 31 and 32, another exchange. We exchange natural vices for supernatural graces. We exchange natural vices for supernatural graces. Notice in verse 31 and 32, he lists five vices that we are to exchange and get rid of. You've got to put off, put on, and put away. You put away these things in the body of Christ. Notice, the first one is bitterness. I define that as smoldering resentment. Smoldering resentment. It's this resentment that just continues to burn deep inside of you like a fire, and it flames up and just gets hotter and hotter, and it becomes a smoldering resentment that you have for a person. Next thing we're to get rid of is rage or wrath. Wild rage, which is selfishly based, is what wrath is. Wild rage, which is selfishly based. The reason you have rage or wrath towards somebody is because you, you're selfish. I'm selfish. That's my response, is rage, because I think I've been offended. They've done something that is not worthy of me. And so it's based upon selfishness. Rage is based upon selfishness, because I deserve to be treated differently. Oh, really? Then why did Christ die for me? You see, this selfish rage is we need to get rid of. Next is anger. I define that as settled inward resentment. Settled inward resentment. Get rid of that. Don't act as if you don't know God when you treat each other in the body of Christ. Next, get rid of brawling or clamor. Brawling or clamor I define as violent outbursts of public yelling. Violent outbursts of public yelling. Now, I'm a strong supporter of ministries that deal with child abuse. But I wish somebody would come up forward and create a ministry on parental abuse. How many of you have been butchered by your kids brawling and yelling at you? I see that all the time. When is somebody going to teach our children that brawling and clamor is something they need to get rid of? We need to create a ministry of parental abuse because many, many parents are just killed by the words of their children. We need to get rid of that in the church. And lastly, slander. Damaging whispers intent to hurt. Damaging whispers intent to hurt. Now, Paul says in verse 32, notice this. Exchange those sinful vices with these supernatural graces. Be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. In other words, he says, here's the summary statement. Get rid of those five natural vices and exchange them with these three supernatural graces. Be kind to one another. Be compassionate to one another. And forgive one another. Now notice, the reason you do that is because you know that's how you have been treated by God himself. So why is it that you're kind to somebody? It's not because they deserve it. It's because you know that God has been kind to you when you didn't deserve it. Why is it you're compassionate to somebody? It's not because they've earned the right for you to be compassionate. It's because in your mind you've made a change of your thinking. You're no longer acting as if you don't know God. You know this, God has been very compassionate to me, and when I give my compassionate to that person, I'm involved in what? You know what ministry is? Ministry is giving away to somebody else what God has given you.
God has been kind. He's been compassionate. And he's been forgiving. And when you exchange those five vices for natural, the supernatural graces of kindness, compassion, and forgiveness, you and I are involved in ministry. Ministry is not something you do. Ministry is something that you are. And when you give away to somebody else what God has given you in a relationship inside the church, you are giving away a ministry because you know this. This is the way God treated me, and I'm going to give that back. And so I'm going to be kind when they don't deserve it. I'm going to be compassionate when they don't earn it. I'm forgiven when they shouldn't be forgiven because that's exactly what God did to me. He was kind, compassionate, and merciful and forgiving to me. Therefore, I'm going to do that to the body of Christ. Do you know what makes it possible? Is the commonality we all have. It's not our ethnic background. It's not our culture. It's not our position in society. It's not our possession. It's not our personality. The one thing we have in common is this. We have the same Heavenly Father. That's the basis of our relationships with each other. When you look at the 58 one another commands, it all starts with these. You break them down in these four categories. Our relation to one another, our reception of one another, our response to one another, and our restoration of each other. And it all starts with this. We all have the same heavenly Father. So Paul says, understand that. Put off the old way of thinking. Put on the new man. And put away all the falsehood of this world. Be kind to one another because God was kind to you and me. Be compassionate because God was compassionate to you and me. And be forgiving because God has forgiven us so much. How can we not forgive that person when they've done so little when he's forgiven us for so much? How can I not forgive this person this time when God has forgiven me all the time? So, dearly beloved, if we were a community of people who never lied but always spoke the truth, who never got angry in a sinful way but always acted in love, who never stole but also always shared, who never spoke filthy communication but always ministered grace to those who were listening, who never had bitterness but were always characterized by tenderness compassion, and forgiveness. Do you think the world might take notice of who we are and our message? Do you think the world would notice it? I believe they would. I believe they would. Let's pray. Merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, you set the standard of how we are to relate to one another because you set the standard of the church. Help us remember this, that doctrine precedes practice. It's our understanding of who we are in Christ Jesus because of that wonderful, compassionate union that we have with you that we now have the ability to treat one another radically different than the way of the world. And so, Father, when it comes time for us to relate to one another as the body of Christ, may we remember to put off the old way of life, to put on the new way of life, and to put away those sinful vices in exchange with the supernatural graces of kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. It may be so for Jesus' sake. Amen.